Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free uh, to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on page 739 in uh, those pew Bibles. Before we go back 2,600 years to our account here in Daniel, I want us to take our time machines to a time a little bit more recent. Uh, Let's travel back to the year 1555. And instead of going to Babylon, I want us to go to London, England, and I want us to meet a man named John Rogers. Rogers had been a Catholic priest, but after all of his schooling and his training and his ordination into the Catholic Church, two years into his first appointment as a priest, he resigned. He had become disillusioned with the Roman Catholic Church and its teaching. And you see, these were the days of the Reformation. These were the days when the writings of of Luther and Calvin were shaking all of Europe. Uh, Thousands upon thousands of people were hearing the gospel and believing and being saved by Jesus. And Rogers was one of those people who were affected by this. Uh, Rogers came to know William Tyndale. Uh, And Tyndale shared the gospel with Rogers. And Rogers became a changed man. In fact, he became a partner with William Tyndale. He became a fellow laborer with him. And together they sought to get the Bible translated into the English language and into the hands of the English masses. Uh, As much as anything, it was people reading the Bible for themselves in their own languages that caused many to reject Catholicism and to turn to the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, These were the days when people in England could be killed by the government for teaching their children even to say the Lord's Prayer in English. But Rogers and Tyndale went ahead with their mission. Two-thirds of our English Bible today still uses the English words that Tyndale and Rogers chose when translating the Bible into English. And just one example of the difference this made, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us about a man named Rollins White. And Rollins White was a simple fisherman in Cardiff, Wales. Uh, He didn't know how to read, but his young son had learned how to read. And so each night after supper, Rollins White would have his son read a portion of the New English Bible he had been able to procure illegally, and his son would read out of that Bible to the rest of the family. And it was through this reading that Rollins White was saved. When it became public that he was a Protestant man, he was taken to be burned to death. And at the place where he was to be burned... They set up a stand where a priest could look over the crowd and speak as white was burning. 
They did this because other martyrs had been preaching the gospel while they were being burnt at the stake. And that was inspiring more people to turn to the gospel. So the law enforcement got the idea, let's have a Catholic priest preach to the masses while the person is burning. That way they won't be hearing the gospel preaching from the martyr. Well, what did White do as this Catholic priest was preaching and as he was being burnt at the stake? Well, this man, a simple fisherman who could not even read for himself, cried out, You wicked hypocrite! Do you presume to prove your false doctrines with Scripture? Look at the text! Which I think is amazing. He had heard the Bible read in his own language by his son. And so this simple fisherman was calling the Catholic priest to look at the text. This was only possible because he had had a Bible translated into his own language. Tyndale would die for his work of translating the scriptures into English. He, he finished the New Testament in prison, waiting to be executed for his crime of translating scripture. Tyndale asked the jailer if he could have his Hebrew Old Testament brought to him so that he could continue the work. So how was that for gumption? Even while he was in prison for the crime of Bible translation, he continued to translate the Bible in prison. But it was John Rogers, this former Catholic priest, who finished the work after Tyndale was dead. Rogers went on to become a pastor in Germany. But soon King Edward VI was in power in England and he allowed for more freedom. And so Rogers moved back to London. He became a pastor in London. And then Edward died and Bloody Mary came to the throne. I wish I had more time to tell you about how Rogers courageously, unashamedly preached the gospel the very Sunday after Bloody Mary took the throne, knowing that it was his death sentence. But while in prison for preaching the gospel, he was not allowed to see his dear wife, Adriana, nor was he allowed to see any of his ten children. And there was another child on the way. By the time his execution day had arrived, the eleventh child had been born. And I heard David Platt talking about this. He said the night before his execution, he pleaded with the jailer that he might be allowed to see his children or at least speak to his wife one time before he died. But his request was refused. And as he was marched through the streets of the parish where he once pastored, and thousands of spectators lined the streets in the sea of faces, he saw his wife and his children. He saw those little eyes looking at their daddy as he marched down the street to be burnt at the stake. He saw for the first time the baby he had never met. And for their sakes and for the sake of the Londoners around him, for the sake of his witness to Christ, he refused to recant the gospel and he was burnt alive. When he was offered the opportunity at the stake to recant, he said, That which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. And he was the very first martyr out of 288 that was martyred under Bloody Mary. Of those 288, some were men, like John Rogers, some were women, and some were children. Mount Hermon. 
Have you ever been so gripped by the gospel? So compelled by Christ's love for you? So overwhelmed by the salvation that you have received? That you would be willing to stand and even be burned alive if that's what it cost? This morning we come to a very familiar passage. One that you've probably heard since Sunday school. If you grew up in the church, you heard it as a little kid. It's the story of Shadrach and Meshach and and Abednego. For the sake of God, they are willing to be burned alive in King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. They're willing to stand, even when it means being burned alive. I've separated this chapter in my mind into six parts. Uh, There's the policy in verses 1 through 7. We're going to see the accusers in verses 8 through 12. We're going to see the threat in verses 13 through 15. We're going to see the stand in verses 16 through 18. The salvation in verses 19 through 25. And the exaltation in verses 26 through 30. And don't worry if you didn't get all those, you'll hear them again. We're only going to make it partway through this chapter this morning, but I want us to look first at the policy in verses 1 through 7. So let's look together. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the very word God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, we're not told how much time has passed since chapter 2 when Daniel revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. Uh, When we saw Daniel elevated to the right-hand position of the king, where we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego elevated into positions of authority in the kingdom of Babylon. Chapter 2, where we heard Nebuchadnezzar declare the greatness of Daniel's God, that he is God over all gods, king over all kings. But certainly some time has passed. Enough for us to see a very clear return to Nebuchadnezzar's old pagan ways. 
Uh, Certainly the teenage boys that we started out with in chapter 1 are now fully mature men, uh, perhaps in their 20s or even their 30s by the time we get to Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar decides to set up this large statue. And of course, setting up large statues was not at all uncommon in the ancient world. Uh, Thousands of years before this, the Egyptian pharaohs loved setting up monuments to themselves. The Assyrian Empire that Nebuchadnezzar himself defeated often set up these types of images in the territories that they had conquered. And this practice of erecting huge monuments to kings in their glory would continue into the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. And frankly, though we certainly don't worship our monuments, at least not in the same way, we still today have our national statues, our national monuments, in which we honor the glory of past leaders and heroes, even here in our country. Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue in the plain of Dura, which was likely located about 16 miles southwest of the city of Babylon. It was near the modern-day city of Hila, Iraq, which sometimes you will hear about in the news. And we're not told what the image actually was of. Uh, Usually in the Sunday school pictures, it's, it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And people think that because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2 about this statue and he was the head, remember? And so some people think, well, maybe that inspired him to make a statue of himself. But we're not told that. Uh, The image may have been of his namesake god, Nebo. Uh, It could have been an image of the chief Babylonian god, Marduk. Or, like so many other ancient images, it might have been in the shape of an obelisk. And I say that because if you look at the dimensions, the dimensions are weird. Um, 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. So this is, this is a very tall but slender image. Something similar to, to maybe even what we would think of um, when we think of like the Washington Monument where it's you know, very straight up uh, type of monument. Now, we found many similar obelisk type images in the Middle East from ancient times. But what was astounding about this particular statue, this monument, this image, is that it was golden. Now, I don't think it was made of solid gold. I think it was probably plated with gold. But still, think about that. 90 feet by 9 feet plated with gold. That is a lot of gold. This image was a celebration of Babylon and its glory. This image was a celebration of the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, the the riches of this land. This was a kingdom that had conquered many others, taken their treasures, obtained their gold. And this was an image that celebrated war and victory and power and might. It was a monument to the glory of the king Nebuchadnezzar and the glory of Babylon. So the dedication ceremony was to be a huge event. Everybody who was anybody in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was expected to be at this dedication event. And since the king had taken exiles from conquered peoples and brought their best into his government, uh, these were, this was a very diverse group of people. 
But together, this very diverse group of people would all bow in unity to one single image honoring King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, there is a strategy here, right? This is a unifying moment for Nebuchadnezzar. I've conquered all these peoples. I've brought their best men into my government. We're so diverse, but we will be one in honoring my glory. It wasn't just the powerful men who were instructed to bow. Apparently, all over the kingdom of Babylon, musicians were appointed to play at a certain set time. And every person from the lowest slave to the the greatest person in the kingdom was expected to bow down and worship right where they were. So think of the Muslim call to prayer. How faithful Muslims will stop wherever they are and put down their prayer shawls and they will, they will pray. Something like that was going on here throughout the kingdom of Babylon. An appointed time, musicians would play. Everybody, lowest to greatest, stops and worships. This may have been just a one-time thing. At the same time that the image was being dedicated at the plains of Dura, at that very moment, musicians stationed all over Babylon would play the signal and everyone in the kingdom would worship. Or perhaps this was something that Nebuchadnezzar intended to continue as a regular practice for his kingdom. Again, we've seen how Nebuchadnezzar is is constantly scheming and working to convert all the various peoples he has conquered into one monolithic Babylonian empire. This was meant to be a moment of national unity as all of the various ethnic groups, all of the various religious groups of Babylon bowed and worshipped to one image, to one pagan god, to one king. And they did. The policy was established. The The musicians played their instruments. And by the thousands, practically everybody obeyed. The masses conformed to the law. The masses obeyed their king, fell on their faces, and worshipped a false god. What did Jesus say? The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The masses worshipped a false god together. So let's stop here, and let's draw out a couple of implications A couple of implications. First, this passage reminds us that sometimes governments will create policies that God's people must not obey. Again, sometimes governments will create policies that God's people must not obey. Now, civil disobedience is not the default position for Christians. Our default position as Christians is that of submission to our governments. And I'm going to take a few minutes, I want to hit hard on this, because throughout our study of this chapter, we are going to be talking about instances of civil disobedience. And throughout the book of Daniel, we're seeing instances of civil disobedience. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. The scriptures could not be more clear on how we as Christians are to relate to our governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme 
or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them. Titus, you're going to be preaching. Here's what I want you to remind the people of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the King. And do not join with those who do otherwise. So scripture is very clear on how we are to relate to government. In fact, listen to Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. And and as I read these two verses, hear how strongly the point is made. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God... And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, listen to this, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now that's strong language. If you are quick to pull the trigger and disobey the government because you don't like this law or you don't like that law. You are not thinking Christianly. If you are the kind to be hasty, to rush into calling for rebellion or revolution, you are acting in an unbiblical manner. Our default position as Christians is one of submission to governments. Our city government... County government, state government, federal government, these all exist and have the authority they have because of the sovereign will of God. God has given them their authority, and to resist their authority is to resist the ordinance of God. You see, far too often, we read passages like Romans 13, and we immediately start looking for the exceptions. We start looking for Paul to qualify his statement. Douglas Moo says about Romans 13, he says, It's only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1-7 is a history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. In other words, for centuries, Christians read Romans 13 where it says, Submit to governments, and all we want to talk about are the exceptions. We don't want to hit on what it actually means. And that's because our flesh doesn't like submission. And so we use exceptions to try and take away the rule. Uh, Pastor Gary Hendricks will be coming in November to preach our anniversary service. And we are excited about him coming. Uh, He says, too often we are like the teenager who is told by his father that he can go out to the football game with his buddies but he must be home by 10.30 p.m. And the dad says to his teenage son, if you're not home by 10.30 p.m., you won't be allowed to go to any more football games. And the son replies, but dad, what if we have a flat tire? What What if all the guys get sick and we have to go to the emergency room? What if there's an earthquake and it knocks out all the bridges and we can't make it home? And he says, like that boy, we often come up with a thousand situations to try and explain why we should not obey the government and thereby try and ignore the basic principle. 
Friends, don't let this chapter, Daniel chapter 3, about an appropriate moment of civil disobedience lead you to lose your proper posture of submission to governing authorities. If you think about it, until we come to this chapter, perhaps over as long as a decade or maybe two decades, Daniel and his friends have lived in submission to Nebuchadnezzar. Disobeying the government was not the daily experience of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Obeying the government, submitting to government was their normal experience. It's the the unusualness of this situation that explains why it was recorded for us and written down. Paul wrote Romans 13 teaching us to submit to government when Emperor Nero was in power. You're worried about Trump? You think Clinton's bad? This is Nero. Read a little bit about Nero. So there is something so good and there is something so right about governmental authority that we are to honor it and even obey it when those who hold the positions are wicked. Mount Hermon, do not take for granted the common grace given to people through government. Do not take for granted the law and the order that a stable government provides, resulting in greater security and safety for us. Christians are not anarchists. We believe in governmental authority. The Bible teaches us to be true conservatives. Did you know that? Just to be very provocative here, the Bible also teaches us to be true liberals. But let me define that. Classically defined, a liberal is someone who holds to principles that help people live truly free lives. A classic liberal is someone who loves freedom and wants people to live freely. And historically, liberals have understood the need for government. Anarchy doesn't bring freedom. Anarchy brings restraint. But in order for people to be truly free, government itself needs restraints. And so true liberalism, stemming from the ideas of John Locke, was enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, including the Bill of Rights that our state led the way in demanding for. And so freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, these are all liberal ideas. And the problem today is that those that we call liberals are not really liberals at all. They want to punish people who hold to ideas different than their own. They want to shut the mouths of those who haven't joined in the moral revolution. Christians are to be true liberals, classic liberals, in the sense that we believe wholeheartedly in protecting the freedoms of people. We believe in loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So whatever freedoms we would want to enjoy, we fight to make sure those are protected for our neighbors as well. It's very different than militant Islam. Militant Islam comes into a territory and burns down all the churches. Christians are willing to fight for the right of Muslims to keep their mosques. Why? Because it is in the culture of freedom that we can best love our Muslim neighbors and our secular neighbors and seek to win them with the gospel of Christ. 
we don't win people to Jesus through legislation or regulation or through restricting religious freedoms. We win people to Christ with love. And we fight for people's freedoms because Christ has set us free from the ultimate bondage. And so we're just imitating our Savior. So Christians ought to be true liberals in the sense that we are promoting freedom in as many ways as we can. And frankly, we should have nothing to do with the restricting, punishing, silencing movement that today is called liberal or progressive. There's nothing truly liberal or progressive about it. Uh, Telling bakers and photographers who they must serve with their business is as anti-freedom and anti-liberal as it gets. Telling private schools what policies they must adopt and then creating punishments if they refuse is is more totalitarian than liberal. There's nothing liberal or progressive about what the elites in our culture are doing under those names. But Christians are also to be true conservatives. Put simply, a conservative is someone who recognizes that there are some principles and institutions of the past that ought to be conserved in the present for the future. Conservatives recognize that human flourishing is not served when we do away with principles and institutions that have helped us thrive. So take the institution of marriage. Christians rightly believe that marriage is an institution to conserve. We would say don't do away with marriage. It is the cornerstone of society. Family becomes an amorphous idea if you do away with marriage. Manhood suffers. Womanhood suffers. Children suffer. Society suffers when the institution of marriage is compromised or lost. We say conserve that institution. And we could talk about the local church. We could talk about principles concerning religious liberty. We could talk about a binary understanding of gender. All of these are things that we would say conserve. But here's the thing. Biblically, we also believe in conserving the institution of government. Alongside marriage, alongside the church, civil government is an institution that the Bible commands us to conserve, and affirms its value. Now, as Christians, we understand the depravity of man. Therefore, we know that absolute power given to any one man is dangerous. We like our governmental power to be spread out with checks and balances, but we are not anti-government. Romans 13 will not let us be. And if watching the Middle East over the last 25 years has taught us anything, it has taught us that even a corrupt dictator is better than pure chaos. Because we've seen what happens when there is pure chaos and no strong leadership. That is when terrorism festers. There is more violence, more instability, more wickedness, more death when there's no law and order. As far short as our human governments fall from the ideal, at the end of the day, human government is still a gift of love to us from our God for our good. And it is a picture to us of His authority. And so we are Bible-bound. We are conscience-bound. 
to be submissive to our government, and that is our default position. Okay? I spent a lot of time on that. Why? Because we're going to spend the next month talking about disobeying government. Okay? So I want to make sure we are clear up front about what our default position is before we talk about times when we should disobey. Okay. That being said, there are examples in the Bible of godly people being placed in situations where they are required by their allegiance to God to disobey the governmental authorities. So do you remember the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1? Imagine you were in their shoes. Pharaoh has given you a command. When a Hebrew woman gives birth to a baby, if the baby is a boy, you must kill it. That was the command. You must take the life of newborn baby boys. This was a clear violation of the moral law of God. And these midwives could not obey that command, even if it meant death for themselves. And they stand as examples to us because they would not obey Pharaoh. We could look at Moses' mother, Jochebed, right, in clear violation of Pharaoh's decree, Jochebed hid her baby boy Moses for three months at the risk of her life. Think about Queen Esther. With lives on the line, she agreed to approach King Ahasuerus, though she had not been invited into his presence. And you might think that's a small thing, but this was against the law and it was punishable by death. Esther told her uncle, before she dared approach King Ahasuerus, without being invited, she told her uncle, if I perish, I perish. She knew what she was risking. But she violated the law in order to save the people of Israel. By the way, notice that all of the examples I've given so far are of women. Dear ladies in this room, should God's providence bring you to a moment like this in your life, are you ready to stand? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? In our passage here in Daniel, any follower of Yahweh was immediately put into a position where they could not obey the king's command. That's because... God's first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me. And God's second commandment says you shall not worship any graven image. No earthly king's decree trumps the moral law of God. And so we will see Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego disobey the decree of the king of Babylon. Think about the apostles. Remember when Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel near the temple? After being kept in prison all night, they were brought in the morning before the council of the elders and the scribes. And the high priest was there, along with the other most important people and powerful men of the Jews. And they threatened Peter and John. And they charged them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus any longer. And how did Peter and John respond? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen 
and what we have heard. Say what you will, threaten us as you might. We must obey God rather than man. And John Rogers could have said the same thing. The crime that brought him to being burnt alive on the streets of London was that Catholic Queen Mary came to the throne and the following Sunday he dared to preach the gospel. There were many commands that Rogers would have submitted to, but this was one command that he could not submit to. He must preach the gospel no matter what the cost. And even in his death, before the eyes of his watching children, he was declaring to all the worth of knowing and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot more for us to cover here in Daniel 3, but for now let me simply ask you this. Have you come to know the God whose love is better than life? Have you come to know the Savior whose tender care is so wonderful that He is worth living and dying for? I hope that as you reflect on that question, you will sense in your soul, I have such a love for my Savior, and I am swimming in such love of Him for me, that I would gladly give all, if required, for His name. But if you have not come to know Him, I would urge you to call on Christ, to turn from your sins, and to trust Him, so that you can come to know the God whose love is better than life. Come and see why he is worth the cost of following him. For those who know Jesus and live in his great love, let us honor him by submitting to the governmental authorities he has placed over us. And if we ever find that our government demands that we do evil, let us follow their example and honor Jesus through civil disobedience. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.